Would you turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10? 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10. Here again, the word of the Lord. For unto this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have heard from your word the declaration that your word, the sum of your word, is truth. And we remember the words of Christ who prayed for his disciples as he prayed for us that we would be sanctified in the truth of your word. And so we ask that you would do that this evening, Lord, through these ordinary means and the ordinary gathering together of your people. Would you do extraordinary things? Lift our hearts and minds from an earthly mindset to a heavenly one. May we contemplate all the glories and riches of heaven in Christ Jesus here for a short time in preparation for when we will enjoy it for a much longer time. Do this, we ask, by your spirit, for the glory of your great name. Amen. Well, many of you are probably aware that in 2020, PCA pastor Tim Keller was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer which, as I understand, is one of the most severe forms of cancer that you can get, and generally the diagnosis is always uh, terminal. Miraculously, God has prolonged Keller's life, and now here two years later, he's still with us. But at the outset of that diagnosis, when he first received the news that he had pancreatic cancer, uh, Tim Keller wrote an article for The Atlantic uh, entitled, Growing My Faith in the Face of Death. And I commend that article to you if you've not read that. It is powerful. And uh, Keller gives a kind of challenge to himself by saying, I've spent years giving people biblical counsel on what it looks like to die well. He says, I wonder if I can take my own advice. But he wrote words in that article that I've returned to time and time again, words that have served me both as a source of great encouragement, but also as a call to repentance. Here's what he said. Since my diagnosis, my wife Kathy and I have come to see that the more we try to make a heaven out of this world, The more we grounded our comfort and our security in it, the less we were able to enjoy it. To our surprise and encouragement, we have discovered that the less we attempt to make this world a heaven, the more we are able to enjoy it. Indeed, it is only as I have become more heavenly minded that I can see the material world for the astonishingly good and divine gift that it is. It's worth spending some time thinking through those words. And I'm reminded of Keller's words when I read Paul's words here. And here's why. Because these words of Paul, like Keller's, draw us out of our captivation with this world. They challenge us to align ourselves with a heavenly mindset. They challenge us to consider our, our purpose. Why in the world we're here. The very reason for our existence 
It is true, often true, that the threat of death, the reality of death, uh, often invokes this kind of introspection that leads to a self-examination where the distractions of this world quickly fade away. I think it is true that death affords unique opportunities to see things a bit more clearly, to see things from an eternal perspective. But my hope is this evening that even if death is not on our doorstep, and the reality is, is that we don't know. God has so ordained that we would live not knowing when our time will come. But even so, I want us tonight to take those words seriously. To take these words of Paul seriously. To consider that our motivation for living, our telos, The end goal and end game of our lives as Christians is very different from that of the world's. And I have to be honest with you, this is something that I have to be reminded of every single week. I don't know if you've noticed it, maybe you have, maybe you haven't, but there's a consistent theme that tends to run through my sermons, which is uh, that so many of them, the sermons that I preach are are intended to, they're directed towards uh, lifting our gaze from this earth to eternity to come, considering the reality of heaven and how that ought to affect how we live. And the, the reason I think this is, is because throughout the week, I am bombarded with temptations to live as if this world is all there is. And as John will tell you, when we preach, we are preaching to ourselves. But the reason that we do this, brothers and sisters, on Sunday night, when we could be doing so many other things... The reason that we do this, the reason that we gather together is to have our hearts and minds shaped by the will of God through the preaching of the Word of God. It is to have our powers of discernment trained so that we can distinguish accurately between what is good and righteous and what is not. This is where we're transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we may indeed know how God would have us to live for however many days He's granted us. This is where we must gather together to stir up one another from stagnation and laziness and worldliness to zealous love and good works as we see the day of Christ's return drawing near. I need you to remind me of that reality, even as I do for you. This is where we must encourage one another to press on, to keep fighting for the upward call of Christ Jesus. And every week I'm in need of having my heart and mind and eyes drawn up out of the earthly gutter and fixed on a far more glorious hope. I need to be reminded why I'm here. I know you need to be reminded why you're here and what I'm to be busy with while I'm here. And I wonder if perhaps Timothy was not in need, ministering in pluralistic, worldly Ephesus. Ephesus, if he, if he needed this, that same kind of reminder. Well, Paul's brief but very straightforward words here in this one verse have everything to do with motivation. They have everything to do with purpose. And the Greek word here captures that well. He says, for to this end, towards this telos, he tells us. What is that telos? What is the end What is the center, the very purpose and goal of the Christian life? He tells us it is the hope and glory of the gospel in Christ Jesus. Paul is saying to Timothy, timid Timothy perhaps, 
This is the very core, the very heart of your ministry. The foundation of all that you are, the foundation of all that you must be. This is it. This is why you're here. The gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the one who is the one and only Savior, the only name under heaven by which we may be saved. The gospel of Christ is our center. It's our catalyst. It's our driving force. It's our highest aim. It is our telos. And it's toward this end. It's toward the gospel that we are to toil and strive. And it's, it's these two words, toil and strive, which I find to be perhaps the most daunting and the most challenging because of what they indicate about the nature of the Christian life. And how opposite that is to the natural desires and inclinations of our hearts. You have heard it said, in fact I know John has said this many times, that the Christian life is not a life lived on a what? A cruise ship. It's not a life lived on a cruise ship. The Christian life is one that is lived on a battleship. Yet it seems to me that what we often try to do, indeed what I try to do is, right, we can't change that reality, but what we try to do is dress up the battleship to make it look like a cruise ship. And pretend, pretend to the point that we lose sight of the urgency of our gospel call. My students and I this past week just finished reading together John Piper's book, Don't Waste Your Life. And in that book, Piper says that the Christian life is to be lived in a kind of wartime mindset. Now, he he makes some qualifications to that, which are good. Uh, Not everything about our life is akin to war or wartime. But he uses this as a kind of metaphor to describe the urgency with which we should approach the Christian life. And he cites an example from World War II, a time during which people made incredible sacrifices for the cause of the war. He, He writes here, people grew victory garden, victory gardens to produce their own food because of food shortages. He says they drove at the gas-saving victory speed of 35 miles an hour. The slogan, use it up, wear it out, and make it do or do without, became a household saying. There were tire drives, metal drives, the list goes on. In fact, he, he says at one point they stopped an entire college basketball game. I mean, you know how crazy March Madness is. They stopped an entire basketball game just to find a bobby pin that somebody had misplaced. That's how desperate they were. Uh, for some of these materials. This is Piper's point. What, What is he saying? He's saying that people made sacrifices during that time. They understood the urgency, the necessity of making those sacrifices, and they did so willingly. And Piper says, how much more willing then ought we as Christians be to sacrifice our comforts and our leisure for the sake of God's kingdom? The Christian life, much as it may be to our distaste, is a life of labor. And sometimes very hard labor. And I'm learning that in all new ways this season. It is a life of focused sacrifice. It is a life of joy, rich joy, no doubt. But a joy that does not come from earthly environments, possessions, or circumstances. But a joy that comes from the hope that each one of us possess as members of Christ by faith, in a hope that we are exhorted and commanded to share with a world that does not have it. Paul states here, I think rather matter-of-factly, in this very short verse, 
that a life lived in pursuit of the proclamation of the hope of the gospel, a life devoted to the gospel, is a life that necessarily entails toil and strife. The Greek word for the verb toil here is kopiao, and it quite literally means to labor until a point of exhaustion. The word for strive here is the verb agonisomai. What does that sound like? Agonisomai. (laughs) Agony. Paul is saying that the Christian life is one that we are meant to labor until a point of exhaustion, striving, agonizing towards the hope of the glory, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is to say that we as followers of Christ are meant to, commanded to, commended to, to spend ourselves, to give all that we are, to pour ourselves out for the sake of God's kingdom, the advancement of the gospel in the world. Now, if you read those words, toil and strife, and they sound uncomfortable, you're reading it right. This is a great struggle for us here, even more so because of where we live. We are so blessed to be here. We enjoy so many rich comforts in this nation. But with great blessing comes great responsibility. And I fear sometimes that because we enjoy so many rich blessings in this country, what often happens is we are, we are driven from that kind of wartime mentality where we really understand the urgency of the gospel and we fall back into a pattern of seeking comfort and ease. I want us to take a moment to think on the life of Paul, lest we be tempted to think that he's commending something here that he would not do himself. Did Paul strive and toil in the hope of the gospel? Well, hear these words from 2 Corinthians chapter 1, and let this be your answer. Paul says, We do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, of the affliction that we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. So utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself itself. Indeed, he continues, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but all that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He's still preaching the resurrection in 2 Corinthians. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us again. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver again and again and again. Later in his second letter to Timothy, at the very end of his life, Paul says this, I am already, I am even now being poured out as a drink offering. Indeed, the time of my departure has come. Do you remember what he says next? I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. And I have kept the faith. How I long to hear those words at the end of my life. For they speak of a life fulfilled. A life of toil and of strife live towards the glory of God, for which the reward is incomparable. Earlier I had said that both Keller's article and Paul's words here have often served me as a kind of call to repentance, a wake-up call. And here's why. Because these words call us to repent out of our sluggishness and laziness and selfishness. These words call us to repent of seeking comfort, rather than godly responsibility, leisure rather than faithfulness. 
These words call us to repent for all our striving after and gathering up of material possessions rather than the meditating on, the rejoicing in our, our heavenly inheritance. These words call me, they call us out of a tendency to live for this world only, which is a temptation and a tendency that we all sense and feel. These words call us to stop and consider again, what what am I living for? Who am I living for? And what is the end game? What is the end goal? And the words of Christ come echoing back off the walls. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? What does it profit us to strive and toil for that which will one day burn away? Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will save it. Do we take those words seriously? Are we toiling and striving to build a kingdom for ourselves here on earth, are we to- or are we toiling and striving after a far better kingdom that is yet to come? I have said this before. This verse has often struck me in Hebrews, in that great chapter 11, the hall of faith where the author is describing the faith of Moses. Do you know what he says? He says that Moses left Egypt, departed from Egypt, because he considered that the reproach of Christ, the cross of Christ, was greater wealth than all the finest treasures of Egypt. So brothers and sisters, don't look at the glories of Egypt, but fix your eyes on the cross of Christ, for there are found riches that this world cannot provide. Now, I found it true of myself and generally true of most people that we are naturally results oriented. We're driven by the promise of a favorable outcome. We long to be rewarded for our work. And so we work to that end. There's a reason the phrase working for the weekend is something that's often repeated. We toil and strive for that next paycheck. We labor towards that next vacation. We strive and long for summer break, teachers. We are a people constantly looking forward to that next best outcome. But the great challenge to the Christian life is is this, that oftentimes we don't get to see the fruits of our labor. We toil and strive for the sake of the gospel, but oftentimes we we aren't sure if we've made an impact. We toil and strive and wonder, have I been faithful? Have I done enough? And while these words of Paul have often driven me to repentance for falling again and again into worldly distractions, they have also been a great source of encouragement. And here's why. Because they remind us that all our toil and strife is not without purpose, but is towards a glorious end. A glorious tell us, an end which we are promised to see with our own eyes, an end which we are assured will certainly come to pass. From Adam's day in Genesis chapter 3 until this very day, all work has been a kind of toiling and striving, has it not? Mankind was promised in the curse for sin that by the sweat of our brow we would earn our bread, and by the sweat of our brow we are earning our bread. Toil and strife. But here in these words, we are reminded of the one who came to redeem us out from under that curse. Christ has come. And though our work may still 
be full of toil and strife. It is a toil and strife that is unlike the toil and strife of the world because it is full of hope and purpose and glory. This is encouraging because we are reminded that the toil and labor and strife of the Christian's life has eternal significance. Just think on that for a moment. No matter what's your vocation, no matter what you do, whether you're a student, you're a mother, you're a grandmother, you're a teacher, your toil and strife, as difficult as it is, has eternal significance in Christ Jesus. It is purposeful, it is meaningful in Christ. And we're told that in Christ it shall not fail. We are not striving about aimlessly. We're not working and toiling for some feeble and frail earthly reward, but we are called laborers in the vineyard of God. Heralds in the streets calling out to others to come find the bread that we have found. Faithful stewards in the house of our master waiting for his return. Our toil and strife is not done in vain. I'm also encouraged and reminded in these words that the efficacy of our toiling and striving is not bound up in our strength or in our capabilities. Paul did not mean for us to take these words here as a kind of self-motivating mantra that leads us to more self-dependence. We're not to toil and strive in total reliance upon ourselves, for that would still be a toiling and striving for ourselves. And so let, let me just say as well that this toiling and striving that Paul mentions here as a part of the Christian life it is not he, Paul is not advocating for workaholism we must also avoid that tendency we, are, we, we don't toil and strife and work and labor just for the sake of toiling and striving and working and laboring I know there are some here who may be more inclined to set aside the urgency of the gospel for comfort and peace but there are also others of us here namely myself who pridefully pursue work and busyness, often for the purpose of telling others about how busy we are and how much we do. We want everyone to know how much we toil and how much we strive. And this, brothers and sisters, is still nothing more than self-exaltation and is not in line with our telos. It is not gospel-centered. Paul does not want us to simply do more. He's not advocating or commending us to just go and fill our schedules with stuff even as he calls us to gospel responsibility here. Rather, I believe that what he intends is for us to see our purpose, the proclamation of the hope of the gospel, and to consider how we might be faithful in that great work. And that faithfulness is not determined by the quantity of tasks that we do. That faithfulness is determined by our motivation. Are we doing it for God's glory or something less? And I think Paul also wants us to recognize, I think he wanted Timothy to recognize that we are weak, that we're easily wearied and exhausted. We're often discouraged and beat down. But do you realize that God in his mercy, he uses even the the broken pouring out of our lives for the sake of the gospel to accomplish his purposes on earth. And that is an incredible privilege. Paul elsewhere calls us jars of clay, doesn't he? 
somehow, some way, God takes all our toiling and striving and ugly crying because we're stressed and makes it beautiful and effective in advancing his plan and purpose of redemption through the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is God at work in and through us, which is the means by which all this toiling and striving is made effective. And that is a glorious thing to contemplate. What a privilege to labor in the fields of the Lord. Our work is light, knowing the outcome of all our toil and strife and labor. What is that outcome? Glory. We are laboring unto glory, the glory of Christ. And so in that hope, brothers and sisters, let me just say this to you tonight. Let me simply encourage you to press on, to keep going. Press on toward that great and eternal prize in the upward call of Christ Jesus. Run the race with faithfulness, your eyes fixed on the prize. Toil and strive and teach unto glory. Toil and strive and write sermons week after week unto glory. Toil and strive and serve those those clients in your veterinary clinic unto glory. Toil and strive and love your husband unto glory. Don't get distracted. Don't lose heart. Don't give up. We are almost home. Press on. Toil and strive in the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ and in the strength that he provides. Exhaust yourselves for the kingdom of God and know that all your toil and strife in the name of of Christ and in the power of Christ is never done in vain. I want to conclude tonight with a poem that was written by a British missionary by the name of C.T. Studd. John Piper quotes uh, a refrain from Studd that was printed on a panel that hung in his home. And I think these words are worth quoting at length. Listen closely. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one, soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day, my Lord to meet and stand before his judgment seat. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, the still small voice gently pleads for a better choice, bidding me selfish aims to leave and to God's holy will to cleave. Only one life will soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, a few brief years, each with its burdens, hopes, and fears, each with its days I must fulfill, living for self or in his will. Only one life will soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. When this bright world would tempt me sore, when Satan would a victory score, when self would seek to have its way, then help me, Lord, with joy to say, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Give me, Father, a purpose deep in joy or sorrow, thy word to keep, faithful and true, whate'er the strife, pleasing thee in my daily life. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Oh, let my love with fervor burn, and from the world now let me turn, living for thee and thee alone, bringing thee pleasure on thy throne. 
Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Now let me say, thy will be done. And when at last I hear the call, I know I'll say, twas worth it all. Only one life, twill soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, and always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Let's pray. Lord, we are tired and weary of our toiling and striving. And we are grateful that you know this. We're grateful that you set aside one day in seven that we may rest from worldly toil and strife and contemplate great realities and truths like the ones we've heard tonight. Lord, we are in need of your strength. Command what you will and give what you command. Strengthen us our course to run that we may faithfully run until we meet you and our faith is turned to sight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.